From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Thursday, July 27th. Lithium is used in products like rechargeable batteries, computers, electronic vehicles. Some say it's a critical mineral for the future of a greener economy. And mining for it has caused a bit of a boom. Companies across the world are staking claims for lithium, including right here in the Paradox Basin. The basin extends over 33,000 square miles in southeastern Utah and southwest Colorado. It's a unique geologic formation with mineral-rich brine deposits left over from oceans millions of years old. Mining for minerals like uranium and potash have occurred here for decades. But lithium? Watchdogs say claims are getting more and more frequent. And it's problematic because you can't tell how serious any of these are because the mining law is so subject to speculation and abuse. It's so easy to stake a claim and to lock up public lands for for lithium or for uranium or, or any other mineral. That's Landon Newell, attorney with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. His organization protested the Bureau of Land Management's approval of lithium exploration projects near Canyonlands National Park. Newell says SUA wanted the BLM to take a harder look at a range of alternatives and consider impacts to water. This is a very arid and dry area, and drilling, even for lithium, consumes a large amount of water. And so the agency had completely blown off that that issue. And the BLM's state director agreed. They told the local field office to address SUA's concerns. And this Wednesday, the BLM released their updated environmental assessment. According to that document, A1 Lithium wants to figure out the economic feasibility of lithium mining just north of Canyonlands. They plan to tap brine deposits using old oil and gas wells. And to do this exploration, the BLM estimates the company will use roughly 25,000 gallons of water, about the size of an average swimming pool. But that's just to find out if lithium and other mineral extraction in that area is economically viable. If it is, A1 Lithium is likely to submit a plan of operations for actual development and production. The company's website says that lithium samples so far meet or exceed battery-grade standards in test wells. Um, We've done a number of tests, so we know we have a very high-quality product. That's Anson Resources CEO Bruce Richardson speaking on the Explorers podcast. Anson is a Australian-based company that owns A1 as a subsidiary. This spring, another Australian-based mining company filed hundreds of lithium claims in Lisbon Valley, just south of LaSalle. It's clear there's a lot of interest in lithium potential for this region. Newell at SUA says he's still working through the BLM's new environmental assessment for the projects near Canyonlands, The public comment period on that proposal is open until August 26th. We do need lithium as we move and transition towards a greener uh, economy and greener energy future. However, that doesn't mean that we should just go about approving any lithium proposal without scrutiny. And it, it doesn't mean that all areas are equal when it comes to you know, the development potential for lithium, or whether they should be developed in the first instance. Newell says SUA plans to make sure that the BLM has done everything it can to minimize the environmental impacts of lithium development in this proposal. Find links to more information in the show notes. 
visitors to Utah's deserts often note their similarity to Mars. And scientifically, that's not far off. In south-central Utah lies one of about a dozen so-called Mars analogs here on Earth. About 500 students traveled there in early summer for the University Rover Challenge. It's an international college robotics competition. Reporter Amanda Height headed to the Red Planet for our partners at KUER. Many people know Hanksville, if they know it at all, as a stopover on the way to someplace else. This part of Utah is defined by its isolation. More than a century ago, Butch Cassidy used to come here to hide out between crimes. In the early 2000s, scientists recognized that the area's geology mirrors that of Mars. They founded the Mars Desert Research Station to study how astronauts might live and work on other planets. The ground kind of has this sort of crust that you sort of puncture through. Makes you feel like your footprints are going to be there for a thousand years. Uh, (laughs) Very, very bleak and dry, but very beautiful also. That's Sam Craven, a senior at Brigham Young University. He's here leading a team to compete in the University Rover Challenge, or URC. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. He's based in Boulder and has judged the competition for many years. Lau has seen hundreds of teams compete and has been deeply impressed by their innovation. Long before we flew Ingenuity as the very first powered flight on Mars, students in the URC were building drones and then flying those drones off of the back of their rovers. This year, everyone on the BYU team is competing for the first time. They've spent the last nine months meeting almost every day. Craven explains that their rover has many of the same features as Perseverance, which NASA piloted on Mars in 2021. It's much smaller, though, about the size of a washing machine. So you can sort of picture the six wheels, and then there's the box in the middle, and then on the front, there's like a three-foot-tall piece of extruded aluminum, and then on that elevator mask, we stick our our robotic arm. There are four tasks that each entry has to accomplish. During the first two, teams must guide the rover as it makes equipment repairs to a mock lander. Then, the rover has to pilot itself to a handful of GPS coordinates, without direction from the students in the command post. It's uh, a little bit like having an appendectomy with no anesthesia. You just sort of sit there and watch and hope and pray. On the second day, the rover goes looking for life. There's a particular compound found in most living cells that glows green when exposed to blue light. The robot uses a laser to test a few samples and collect sand for the judges. As BYU heads into the final morning, the judges post the scores as they currently stand. BYU is in third place. They have a shot at winning. But their last test has been the hardest for most other teams. So far, only two have scored higher than a 15 out of 100. In this fourth task, the team is hunting for a mystery fossil in the shadow of the research station. BYU senior Elizabeth Clark will be maneuvering the rover's arm. I've been telling people all week, I'm like, I'm going to Mars! And now it's like really true. And it's pretty awesome. Halfway through the task, though, it's clear something has gone wrong. Inside the command station, things are tense. An antenna has malfunctioned, and the communications array is lagging. It takes about eight seconds for the driver's commands to reach the rover. Do you think we need to relaunch this? I think we need to relaunch. If you relaunch, you might never connect to it again. Yeah. Even if we get to it, the arm will also be laggy. The next half hour passes surprisingly quickly. BYU, your time is up. Cool. Well, they're going to need to carry it back because (laughs) we did well. The judges hand back a final score. They, too, only end up with a 15. A light rain begins to fall in the afternoon as the teams gather for the awards ceremony. Despite the setback, Clark says there's an overall sense of a job well done. Um, I'm feeling pretty confident. I think we've scored really high. 
um, I'm really proud of what we've done. In a surprise announcement, BYU science lead Jackson Jones wins a special award for his performance on the life detection task. And then... All right, so in third place, we are proud to welcome up to the podium BYU with 344 points. Reflecting on the legacy of the University Rover Challenge, Lau says that really it goes beyond the engineering advances to the people themselves. And that for me has been one of the most important things to see is the the camaraderie and, and the teamship and the care that these people really have for each other. In many cases, what the students really are doing is building themselves up as the next generation who will work on our our Mars rovers and robots across the field for all the kinds of robotics and engineering things that we're doing on the planet. Reporting for KUER News from the Mars Analog in Hanksville, I'm Amanda Haidt. That piece comes from our partners at KUER. Over the summer, volunteers head up Independence Pass near Aspen to help count and observe pikas in their natural habitat. The small, hamster-like animals are often seen perched on rocks, and most hikers will recognize their loud, squeaking sounds. They sound like this. But they aren't just cute. Pikas play an important role in the food web of high alpine environments. And for the past 13 years, the Colorado Pika Project has been studying how climate change is impacting them. Eleanor Bennett, with our partners at Aspen Public Radio, spoke with Alex Wells, who's been with the project for several years. Can you tell us a little bit more about the project and why it's focused on pikas? Yeah. So the Colorado Pika Project is a community science initiative. So we are bringing together volunteers from across Colorado to keep tabs on the American pika, which is this fluffy little rabbit relative that only lives high up in the mountains. And we're interested in pikas because they are really sensitive to temperature and Colorado is getting warmer. Our snowpack is decreasing on average each year. And Our concern is that pikas might start to disappear as well. And what have you learned so far about how pikas are doing here in the valley and across the state? So it seems like at the moment, pikas are doing pretty all right up at high elevations, like in the core habitat that people think pikas only live in. But pikas do get down to lower elevations too. And when I say lower, I mean normally like above 8,000 feet, but like in the forest. And in some of those places, we are starting to see signs that they are on the decline here in Colorado. In other places, like the Great Basin or some ranges in California or Utah, pikas have already disappeared. They're not there anymore. And there are some models that suggest that that is going to happen here in Colorado, too, by the end of the century. So what we want to do now is continue the data set that we're gathering in White River National Forest and Rocky Mountain National Park especially. So those two places we've only been really monitoring at full scale there for about three years now. And we want to get a longer data set to draw some conclusions about how pikas are doing right now. And is climate change the main driving factor or are there other things at play as well? That is a good question. Our evidence suggests that it's climate change. In science, you're always cautious to say 100% that it's ever one single thing. But we are pretty confident that climate change has an impact on pikas. And I think the 
more interesting aspect of that is what is it about climate change? Is it making it harder for them to gather food in the summer that they need to survive for the winter? Is it making it harder for little pikas to find new patches of habitat to live in? Are they freezing to death in the winter because the snow is melting earlier and so there's not that insulating layer to keep them warm in the springtime? That's something that we're trying to figure out too. That was Alex Wells talking about the Colorado Pika Project. Find out more at pikapartners.org. And that's the KZMU News for Thursday, July 27th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.